flashing warning signs in a number of world economies because this is where the money is. Hi folks, finance analyst Michael Douglas here with our senior banking specialist John Maxfield all the way in from Portland. John, happy, well, Cyber Monday, post Thanksgiving. How's it going? It's going well. It's going well. How about you? Did you have a good uh, long weekend? I did. Uh, very restful. Uh, a lot of uh, it turns out pie three meals a day isn't actually very good for you, but it is so great for the soul. So, have you, uh, yeah. we, we made the mistake of we brought a pie to a party that already had a lot of pies. So we brought it home, and I'm the only person at home that eats pie. So <laughs> I've had to really get after it. Well, are you, uh, and, and speaking, since it is Cyber Monday, I do have to ask, uh, even though this is not the, uh, not the tech team, uh, do you have any, uh, any particular deals you're looking out for today? Um, you know what? My wife and I, traditionally, we are not shoppers. We don't buy a lot of things, just as a general rule. Um, and that's mainly because my wife, not me, she's pretty stingy, which is a good thing, of course. But, um, you know, we, we ended up getting a TV on, um, on Friday, which to replace our, just to put this in perspective, not like we're spendthrifts, but our old TV was a Best Buy brand from eight years ago. So it was just barely kind of hanging in there with us. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. No. That's uh, that's a that's a pretty good pretty good response. Um, yeah. I, I, I actually haven't done any Black Friday. Didn't do any Black Friday shopping. Not do, planning on any Cyber Monday. But I haven't checked my email yet. So maybe there's uh, maybe there's something I should uh, go after. All right. So so let's 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 jump right in because there is a lot going on in world economies. We've got a pretty packed show. Um, let's talk first about Europe, and we're going to talk about Japan and China as well. Let's talk first about Europe. Um, you know. There's been some conversation about whether some additional quantitative easing is necessary. I mean, they're staring at uh, possible deflation, 11.5% uh, unemployment rate. Um, so, so, John, sort of lay out for us broadly uh, uh, sort of why this pressure for quantitative easing has been sort of on the upswing. Unlike the United States, which was really aggressive during the financial crisis, Europe had a lot of different uh, players that were stopping it from acting um, in a coherent way to boost the economy at the time that it really needed boosting. And now we're seeing the after effects of that. Like you said, unemployment rate is still in the double digit range. I think it was 11.5% um, in the last reading, whereas ours has come down under 6%. Inflation is just barely over 0%, and they're in fear that there's going to be deflation. So the question is now, what can the ECB, which is the, the European Central Bank, what can it do to try to get things back on the right track? And one of the things we've seen work, at least in the United States, or at least we think it has worked, is quantitative easing. And what quantitative easing is, is that unlike traditional monetary policy, where, the, where a central bank targets low short-term interest rates, a quantitative easing goes after longer-term interest rates. Um, and so you're kind of hitting it on both sides of the yield curve. And that's what the ECB is allegedly thinking about doing, um, not this year, but in the first quarter of next year. Yeah, a little bit of a delay there. Um, well, and, and certainly some of their some of their intention has been just to free up liquidity uh, in in the market, as as you and I have talked about previously. Um, yeah, it, it's it's kind of this broad question, like what will help get the European market going? Um, you know, do you think quantitative easing is the likely silver bullet? Is there something more you know different or more fundamental that needs to happen? Well, one of the things we know from, if you look back at, the, say, the last 100 years, is that any time an economy goes through a really stressed situation, what needs to happen is a couple of different things. You need public spending, that's the government spending, to come in and to fill up the gap of private, the, the drop-off in private spending. 
And that just hasn't been the case in Europe because you had that big austerity movement that right. was centered really in Germany and is still centered there today. Uh, so that has stopped that. And the other thing you need to do is you need to drive down those interest rates. Short-term interest rates increases that spread for banks, then they're more incentivized to loan. Um, but then driving down long-term interest rates makes it more enticing on the consumer side to get loans, to buy a house, or do things like that. Now, we've seen um, an uptick in at least refinancing from the quantitative easing in the United States, which has freed up, presumably freed up, quite a bit of money to pour back into consumer spending, which is another way to, to kind of boost that private spending in addition to increased government spending. Um, so this is, I mean, it, 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 you know, quantitative easing is still an experiment, but in theory, um, there's a lot of reason to think that it will at least help uh, move Europe back into the right direction. Yeah, well, and I, I think actually you and I should probably just do a full separate episode at some point on just government you know, deficit spending to get out of recessions, because I think that's a really interesting topic, and it's one where there's a lot of data and a lot of very sort of interesting commentary, and I think we can have a good conversation about that. So something maybe for us to talk about in, uh, in a couple of weeks or, or when the news cycle slows down a little bit, because there's just a lot of news. Uh, and, and speaking of which, you know, it's not just Europe where we're hearing a lot of rumblings. It's in Japan as well. I mean, um, you know, uh, there's, there's talk uh, that uh, uh, abenomics uh, may not work. Um, that's uh, named for the, uh, the current prime minister of Japan. Uh, and actually, he's thinking about call, uh, calling a snap election to try and uh, rally support, given that his opponents are disorganized, even though he's getting less popular as well. And Japan has fallen back into a recession. John, your quick take. Well, so what's interesting is that Japan and Europe are experiencing similar problems, mm -hmm. but the source of them is different. And the response is very different. So if you look at the source, Japan has been having an issue since the 90s when it had its real estate bubble burst and just hasn't been able to get things back up and going again. And a lot of people are attributing that to its, the demographics. You have a, uh, an aging population, and you don't have a large influx of immigration like you do in the United States to kind of make up, to kind of rebalance the whole thing at the end of the day. Now, and then on the, on the response side, whereas Europe has been is kind of tiptoed in one piece at a time, um, in large part because of the, the lack of uh, political coherence. Japan, with Abenomics, just jumped in with both feet. It's going after fiscal stimulus, it's going after monetary stimulus, and it's going after structural reforms in the economy. But unfortunately, all of these really aggressive things just haven't been able to combat um, the deflationary impact of that aging population in Japan. And so now the question is, well, you know, where, where does Japan go from here? Yeah, well, and, and especially, you know, what, what I'm thinking about, those those three arrows. The third one, um, you know, that sort of you know improvements in things like corporate governance and things like that. I think that that could really be sort of a, a long term benefit um, because you know there's been there have been a lot of issues with corporate governance in Japan. So that could be a really uh, a really interesting opportunity long term. Maybe something that won't affect things today or tomorrow or next year, but um, but it could be one of those things that really does help revolutionize and reinvigorate, uh, hopefully to some extent, the economy. Um, so so I guess the the Crucial question is, has Abenomics worked? What do you think? Or will it work, perhaps? Well, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a really good question, and there's a lot of <laughs> I put you in the hot seat, John. It's just what I do. I'm sorry. I can't help myself. No, it's fine. And, and there's a lot of debate out there about whether or not it is working. But I think the one thing we can say with a relatively high degree of certainty is that if the objective is a steady increase in annual GDP, Japan is struggling to maintain that. 
and a part of that is inflation. And so if you leave it doing nothing, I don't think that's the right answer. So I certainly think that being proactive is the right way to go about it. And then the, then the issue is just a matter of measurement. How effective are the means that they are using being? And you know, you, know, you can make data say anything at the end of the day. Um, but I can't help but think that they are pushing in the right direction if, like I said, GDP growth is the objective. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and some of that market liberalization, I think, um, could be a real plus. Speaking of market liberalization, let's jump uh, across the pond to China, um, where uh, there's been uh, there's a, a movement to start an insurance system for bank deposits. Um, not necessarily too dissimilar from the FDIC here in the United States. And the idea is that that's going to sort of liberalize things for banks, allow them to sort of um, move into a, uh, a more market-based uh, system where some banks will fail. And this is courtesy of our friends over at Bloomberg. Um, good idea? Bad idea? I think it's a, I think it's a great idea. And I, I, I think that, obviously, Ch China has probably put quite a bit of thought into it. And they think that it's a great idea, which is more important than, than my opinion. But yeah. um, what, what, what China is doing here, and we're seeing this kind of across the board in a number of different areas, they are trying to position their economy so that it can be the leading economy in the world. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think it's, you know, I don't think that it, this is, uh, this would be a contentious claim, but I think that they want to, to take over the United States' role in, in the world in terms of economy, and it, it makes sense, right? I mean, they have a billion three-plus people, right, which is three times the size of the United States. Right. And one of the ways that they need to do that is they need to free up their economy to really, uh, to kind of more of those capitalist instincts that will drive economic growth for many, many decades like it's done in the United States over the past 100 years. And one of the ways that you can do this is you can clean up that channel where money is taken from savers and then allocate it over to private investment. And that is done principally through banks. And up until now, there's been an implicit guarantee of bank liabilities by the government of China. And so by it's kind of an odd thing by basically saying that, look, we'll guarantee deposits. It's actually a liberalization because they're moving away from a complete uh, implicit guarantee. And that's moving in that direction of the market, market liberalization. Um, yeah, and I, I can't help but think that it is a step in the right direction um, for China as a general rule. Now, for the United States, maybe if we want to stay <laughs> on top forevermore, uh, maybe it, it should, it's not looked at in the same, in the same positive light. Right. Well, and, and, and my thing is, when I look at the China thing, I mean, all deposits will be covered for 99.6% of savers. All right. So I mean, this isn't really going to be earth shattering. Um, and, and it very much sort of feels like the sort of gradual adjustment that you've seen the Chinese government do with sort of a lot of its market liberalization uh, schemes where they'll just kind of start with something smaller and then, and then boost into something bigger. Um, so it, it does seem like a, like a good rational um, uh, piece, uh, piece to cover. Um, but if you, yeah, no, Michael, if yeah, you, here's the important thing. If you read between the lines, what's happening now is pri you know, prior to this, there's been this implicit guarantee of all liabilities. After this, and if you look at a bank's balance sheet, it's composed of deposits. And then on top of that, you have, nowadays, you have a, a large chunk of warehouse funding from other financial institutions, right? So by moving to um, this just where they're just guaranteeing deposits, 
you're taking out that huge uh, chunk of warehouse funding and you're not insuring that. So that is really what's going on here. So while it seems like it's um, kind of a marginal change, it's actually relatively substantive um, when it comes to uh, uh, the protection of banks. Yeah, and 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 it should uh, it should make a make a big difference. And um, you know, some liberalization makes sense in part because you know we're seeing uh, China's growth rate sort of starting to go from you know very very high to just high. Um, you know, they're looking at. Uh, uh, reducing uh, the 2015 growth target from this year's 7.5% goal, according to Bloomberg, um, for uh, so looking at next year's as maybe a little bit lower. I mean, still, of course, that's much better than uh, the United States or Europe's economy, but um, definitely still below the double digits we'd kind of gotten used to seeing from China. So it makes sense for them to be uh, making uh, making smart moves toward liberalization. All right, well, I think that's all we've got for you today, folks. Uh, John, thank you, uh, as always, for your uh, insightful commentary. Um, folks, check back to Fool.com and, of course, our other Where the Money Is podcast for all your investment needs and full on. <laughs>